0: So I've experimented with, with the material wealth, and it, there's a certain amount of kick to it. You get to fly privately, that's okay, you don't have to wait in line, that's nice. You get to buy, you know, a bigger house, that's okay, but ooh, it has some drawbacks. <laughs> By drawbacks, I mean you have to take care of it, you have to maintain it, you have to hire a lot of people, and it feels empty, because it is empty.
1: That's Tom Shadiak, author of Life's Operating Manual. This is Conversation Earth, exploring our place on the planet. I'm Dave Gardner, and in this episode, we'll hear Tom's thoughts about the true nature of happiness.
0: Facing my own death brought an instant sense of clarity and purpose. If I was indeed going to die, I asked myself, what did I want to say before I went? It became very simple and very clear. I wanted to tell people what I had come to know. And what I had come to know was that the world I was living in was a lie, and the game I had won at, which I thought would help to heal the world, might very well be what was destroying it.
1: That's from the documentary I Am, which Tom Shadyak wrote, directed, and narrated in 2010 after a near-death bicycle accident. Prior to that, Shadyac directed major Hollywood comedies. Patch Adams, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and Bruce Almighty— to name a few. Tom found the trappings of Hollywood success rang hollow. He traded the mansion and private jets for a bicycle and a mobile home park. And he wrote a book about what he learned, Life's Operating Manual. This is a continuation of the conversation we began in our last episode. You wrote in uh, life 's operating manual about the failure of morality and ethics to keep pace with mankind 's technological and population explosion is that you know is that what we're witnessing can you Can you explain that to me
0: well, and this is an idea that I observed but also saw great souls like Martin Luther King also express, which was that we haven 't had a moral revolution to keep pace with our technological revolution so if you look at the arc of the technological revolution, I forget what year, but you know, industrial revolution and on, that curve just shoots straight up. We begin to become incredibly inventive after, you know, metals forged and, you know, fire and, and it just shoots straight up with computers and uh, space travel and air travel, et cetera. But we haven't had the same moral revolution. We haven't had that same awakening that critical mass of, oh, I see what a meaningful life is about. It's a communal idea. It's about relationship uh, and, and how I can contribute to relationship and creativity. We haven't had that. So there was some beautiful morality and, and ideas of oneness in indigenous cultures because they couldn't store. See, it all happens around storage. If you read Life's Operating Manual or read a book like Ishmael, by Daniel Quinn, you'll see what farming, what agriculture did for us and then challenged us with. What it did for us was allow for specialization, which is where all that technology came from. Oh, not all of us have to look for food every day. So some of us can be roofers and painters and some of us can focus on um, architecture and art, et cetera. So all that creativity comes because of this beautiful tool we have called agriculture but it also allowed us to store. And so we could then pillage the earth. Oh, we can cut this much forest down and make that much more food. And we can then come up with refrigeration so we can store all the food and we haven't reached a balance yet. And that storage idea is what makes a multi-billionaire who might live blocks away from someone who can't afford to eat because it's all stored. And so this is again why... Why Jesus comes along in the greatest moral teaching, I think, argue, in, almost inarguably, uh, the Sermon on the Mountains, says, don't even store into barns. Don't store into barns. And, and he's always talking about giving. Whatever comes to you, give it, because it will come back to you tenfold. And he's not necessarily talking—we've perverted that to think that, oh, money will come back tenfold. If I give a dollar to the church, I'll get ten back. No, you'll get, you'll get the experience of true wealth by giving. And that dollar will multiply in terms of a life uplifted that you will be a part of and always feel connected to, so we haven't had that same moral revolution yet, but that moral revolution what it, where did the technologies come out of? They came out of things that didn't work right we 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 were okay too hungry there. this food supply is not as secure enough for us, so we want to figure out a way to make it secure and so out of those needs and that darkness and shadow, as I said before come inventiveness right necessity is the mother of invention i think it's the same in the moral world and and we're seeing it as more and more urgent and necessary that we rethink we re-examine the moral basis on which we build the society
1: i think you're telling us that we're uh, that we're not bad we're we've just been asleep
0: yeah i i i think that's well said uh, well said. I, I read the most simple poem the other day um, from Daniel Ladinsky, who I have been blessed with a, a relationship with. He he translates the Hafez poetry, and it was it, it was it was a poem from the point of view of of, of a dog, and it said, um, "I saw you were fearful as you were asleep, so I licked you awake." <laughs> so it was about an, another animal that was dreaming and afraid in its dream and the other animal came and licked it awake. And I think that's the job of a Martin Luther King. That's the job of a Jesus and a Gandhi uh, and a St. Francis is to lick us gently awake. That we are not fully aware of how life works, not fully aware of our interconnectedness, not fully aware of the dance. You know, the original term in the Christian Catholic Church of the Trinity, it, it's, a, it's a term that meant flow. It wasn't about a separate this and a separate father and a separate son and a separate Holy Spirit. It was about the flow between spirit, the earth, and some creative intelligence. It was a dance. And we've forgotten that. It may be divinely appointed that we've forgotten that because, again, it has allowed so much creativity. It's allowed so much the explosion of technologies. And that's beautiful. Now, if we can place a more sustainable ethos undergirding that creativity, that explosion of technology, now we have something that could really be cool, really be uh, beautiful, and, and the word thrive might actually now be applicable to far more people than it is.
1: Here's another moment from the film I Am.
0: My world changed overnight. And well, I kind of went shopping. First, I bought a little 7,000 square foot house in the hills of Beverly. Swimming pools, movie stars.
1: Your choice for favorite comedy
0: motion picture is- The Nutty Professor- Liar Liar.
1: Bruce Almighty.
0: And when more film success came my way, I bought a bigger house and more stuff. I was flying privately everywhere, vacationing, looking for properties. But something odd happened to me when I moved into my first Beverly Hills house that kind of took the edge off my buzz. I was standing alone in the entrance foyer after the movers had just left and I was struck with one very clear, very strange feeling. I was no happier. There I was standing in the house that my culture had taught me was a measure of the good life and it made me absolutely no happier. Hmm, interesting.
1: Tom, you wrote in Life's Operating Manual about wanting our kids to have the finer things in life. That seems to be a strong current in our culture, the the belief that each generation should be better off than the last. Uh, I want to ask you, if you think that's possible, how you think that's possible, what are the finer things? I think in part one of our conversation, you actually started to touch on kind of getting in touch with what really are the finer things in life.
0: Well, not only do I think it's possible, I think it's inevitable because, uh, I mean, I'll be, in, I'm an example. I'm ai am a, you know, I'm in the Petri dish and my life is an experiment. That was actually Gandhi's title for his autobiography, uh, my experiments with truth. So I've experimented with with the material wealth and it. there's a certain amount of kick to it. You get to fly privately, that's okay. You don't have to wait in line, that's nice. You get to buy, you know, a bigger house, that's okay, but ooh, it has some drawbacks. <laughs> and then I've, by by drawbacks, I mean, you have to take care of it. You have to maintain it. You have to hire a lot of people, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it feels empty because it is empty. And then I've I've experimented with the other kind of wealth, which is, oh, rather than buy this expensive thing, what if I send a kid to school? Or I help someone who is ill and doesn't have the resources to have medicine, or I help free child soldiers through a group called Invisible Children. And so with that experiment, I got to test which is more powerful. It's not even close. So I think it's inevitable that there's another kind and definition of wealth that will be rising up. Nobody ever goes, I mean, we, we know this. We, we, you know, it's almost cliche to say nobody ever goes to a funeral, and then they list the assets of the guy in the casket. <laughs> <laughs> the assets that they list are his qualities he was gracious to his family he was so he worked hard because he believed in excellence it's virtually never a a listing of his stocks and bonds it would make for one dull funeral yeah but it's not that and so you know oftentimes writers write to the end like we like to see the end oh is rocky going to win or is rocky not going to win he's going to win so we write to the end because we know where we're going. If we know that's where we're going, then I think the human species needs to write a new story as to how to get there. How do you get in the casket with someone saying, this was a loving human being. This was a human being who contributed to a society. This is a human being who who took what he needed and explored and, and, and had a beautiful life full of art and exploration and risk, but anything he didn't need, he shared with his community. He uplifted others, etc., and thereby uplifted himself. It's inevitable because it's more powerful.
1: That's great. I love the parable of the fisherman that you recount in, in your book. Can you share that with us? You might have to recount that one. That's one I haven't told in a long time. I heard that from the actor <laughs> Mike Myers first told me that one. Here's that parable about a man who lived in a village in a cottage by the sea. Every morning, the man went fishing and caught just enough fish for the day. Afterwards, he would spend time playing with his son, take a siesta, and enjoy lunch with his family. In the evening, he and his wife would meet friends at a local bar, where they told stories, played music, and danced the night away. One day, a wealthy American tourist saw the fisherman and his meager catch and asked, "'Why do you only catch three or four fish?' "'That is all my family needs for today,' the fisherman replied." But the tourist had gone to business school and could not help but offer advice. You know, if you catch a few more fish and sell them at the market, you could make some extra money. Why would I want to do that? The fisherman asked. With the extra money, you could save up and buy a boat. Then you could catch even more fish and make even more money, which you could use to buy an entire fleet of boats. Why would I need so many boats? queried the fisherman. Don't you see? With a fleet of boats, you could sell more fish. And with the extra money, you could move to New York, run an international business, and sell fish all over the world. And how long would this take, the fisherman asked. Maybe 10 or 20 years, the businessman said. Then what, the fisherman said. Then you could sell your company for millions, retire, buy a cottage by the sea. Go fishing every morning, take a siesta every afternoon, enjoy lunch with your family, and spend the evenings with friends, playing music and dancing. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what's occupying your time these days. I'd like to hear more about the One Family Project in particular.
0: Well, uh, the film I Am, which we started our conversation with, is a critical story. Step on the path which is that waking up that we just talked about the waking up to the I am which is I am is the original utterance of God it is the unity of all things it is the life force that exists and connects everything and I am was an exploration in the beauty of that story where I stand right now is walking the I am uh... into a we are so i'm using whatever experience i have whatever whatever place i've come to on my journey to share that through teaching through mentoring i'm continuing in the film world as well and i have a project here as i told you in soulsville but it's all through the ethos of the new story i want to walk the new story as best and imperfectly, but as best as I can so that those young people can say, oh, there was an example once of, of someone who did this. Like right across town here in Memphis is St. Jude. That's been walking it for 50 years. That's the new story. And it's an institution that has unlimited means because people recognize the power that they share their gifts. And people do very well at St. Jude's. They, they make good money as doctors. They take care of their families. They have nice homes. But they're not the billionaires on hills. And again, that's not a judgment to the billionaire. It's that idea is in all of us. They're making enough money to live a beautiful life. But their true richness is coming because they're curing kids with cancer and they're inventing and searching for the discoveries that will lead to the cure for cancer. And we're trying to do that. That's on a medical level. We're trying to do that on a social level, and also on a storytelling level. We're in, in the in the genesis of starting a film company that runs under a different ethos, that returns art to its truest origin, which is a service. Uh, it's a service. It's not just a platform to become, to separate yourself out and stand on a mountaintop and walk red carpets. It's it's a service. It's a it's a calling to be an artist, to be able to share your art and help a community tell a different story. So everything I've talked about with you, we're trying to make practical. It's fine to talk about it and it's good, that's, that's the I am to recognize it, but now that I am wants to walk in the physical and we're, we, we're hoping to be an example of what that can be. With this group we're putting together called One Family, which will use art and recreation it, it will have a, a pay what you can afford restaurant, and mentorships, job training, apprenticeships, all on a on a five acre campus in the in this community uh, of of Soulsville, as a model to uh, to say this can be done elsewhere.
1: So this is the kind of thing that is uh, we don't have to wait for you to come to our town. This kind of thing is springing up everywhere. I think it is springing up. I see it.
0: Yep. I see it. The problem is is that the news every night is always the exception, so you're always going to see the person that gets punched and not the person that gets hugged. And so it's there. Again, the saying that's very powerful is we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are, and if we're caught in a cycle of less than and, and violence and, and we're fearful, that's what we're going to see in the world. But if we see through that, we can see what's— re- really happening, which is, again, how many kids rose up for a guy named Bernie Sanders because Bernie was saying, we can do this a little more fairly. That's really all he was saying. I mean, you have, to, you have to sort of break it down and get pejorative and name call and call him a socialist. And again, I'm not saying Bernie Sanders is the answer, but I'm saying inside of Bernie Sanders' message is the new story. We can do this better. We can be more generous with each other.
1: But it kind of struck me that, you know, Life's Operating Manual may be like the exact opposite of the art of the deal. I haven't read that book. But. <laughs> Maybe.
0: Maybe, but they each serve their purpose, don't they? I mean, they each serve their purpose. So, Yep, but you served up the um, antidote. You know, I, I I believe that Judas had a role, you know, and judgment would say Judas was wrong. You know, in the Christian story, Judas betrayed the carpenter. But, I think, in the divine perspective, it's with Judas, you we needed that we needed that darkness because without your darkness, we wouldn't have examples of how powerless betrayal is and how powerful a life of love is. So appreciate your darkness, Judas. you know, you you push this the the conversation further along.
1: More with Tom Shadiak in thirty seconds. You're listening to Conversation Earth exploring our place on the planet. The show is distributed free to radio stations around the world. Please thank your station for carrying it. Support for Conversation Earth comes from listeners like you. You can learn more, find episode archives, subscribe to our newsletter, and contribute support at conversationearth.org. Now back to Tom Shadiak. You mentioned briefly early on in our conversation about your awakening to our impact on the planet. How would you relate all of this to our environmental crisis and our impact on the planet?
0: Well, what we see on the outside is always a reflection of what's going on on the inside. So the environmental crisis is a really great name, but it's not just because we're scraping the land and we're poisoning the rivers and the air. We're poisoning the air between each of us. There is an environmental crisis. The environment that we have created when we do business with each other is poisoned. So look, I was raised on the winner loser model. So it was a shock to me (laughs) when I realized that I was actually a part of the problem because I was taught that you take all that you can. If you're talented, if you have something unique to offer the world, you get to take as much as you can because that's the smart thing to do in the winner-loser model. I'm worth more. I'm more valuable. I want to be a winner and paid more. And when I realized that was the exact same mentality that was destroying the earth, that, well, I can make more money if I just, you know, if I put this pipeline this way. Right now, the Dakota Pipeline is going on to provide energy. That's a big issue that's happening in the world right now. And I think for people to understand each other's, we have to understand what one person is protecting and what's the, what is more valuable to protect tradition, the very home that we're on. Nobody knows what the extent of the environmental crisis is. Nobody knows. I'll be the first to admit it. <laughs> Nobody knows. The problem is, is that if the science is right, And if environmentalists are right, then everything that we know of as life will cease to exist, meaning we'll cease to exist. And that's a huge consequence. And so that as a consequence versus, well, we have to rethink an industry. We have to rethink how we come up with energy to keep our technologies moving forward. It's not close, I I don't think. When you look at... Again, the the God of any situation is what is the most loving? Not what is the most fearful, but what is the most loving? And the immediate need for a job is that's coming out of fear, but we have to take care of people who are not necessarily, who are being left behind because of the new technologies. We have to take care of each other. But anyway, I got, I got off on a little bit of a political uh, 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 bent there, but the environmental crisis arises because of the crisis in our morality it allows us to take 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 for a profit 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 without realizing that we're destroying the very home that we that we live on the planet is our home and you know nobody even knows we think that there's a saying in the environmental movement and I used to believe this and I'm not so sure I believe it anymore which is Nature's going to be fine. We just won't be fine, right? That's what's kind of what the current yeah. thing. Nature will be fine. Yeah. We just might not be here to see it if we keep behaving this way. I'm not so sure I believe that anymore. What if, and it's possible that this thing we call Earth is a living organism? It's an organism. You can see. You can see the rivers of the veins. You can see the parallels with our own biology. That they're called fractals and what if at some point just like our body can't take it anymore and it shuts down it's possible we don't know we just know that we're throwing things out of balance because we're fearful and and we've got to find a way through that we've got to find a way through it and it's a moral question it's a moral question and it's not about quote jobs the job is life And if someone loses a job, we as a society have to step in and say, we are your brothers and sisters. We're going to figure this out together. We are not going to abandon you. If, say, this pipeline doesn't come through, you will not be abandoned. But at the same time, we are going to protect what we believe is a situation that could be uh, lethal for us as those who are participants in life. If our morals were to catch up with our behavior, then I think our tastes and appetites are naturally going to quiet down. We're going to become more peaceful. We're not going to be looking always for the next shiny object. What
1: are the foundations of happiness?
0: Well, they've been studied, and uh, they're, they're basically all the same thing, In that is relation. they come out of relationship. The happiest people are the people with the strongest relationships. And then as a subgroup of that, it's people who feel that they are contributing and have a purpose – and a meaning to their life, uh, a meaning to their work. These are the happiest people, the strongest communities, the strongest relationships, the strongest sense of contribution. Now, where does money and resources fit in? If you don't have enough to eat, if you don't have enough for medicine, shelter, education, money will make you quickly much happier. But beyond the point of acquiring those basic ideas which I just listed, money does not make you any happier. So after a certain point, after we're able to gather the resources to get, you know, our medical needs, taken care of food, et cetera, our basic needs, then it's really all about the happiness is generated from community, relationship, creativity, a contribution.
1: Are there some good ways uh, people who are farther along on the journey can help the fearful overcome that fear?
0: Well, I just say live live, live the truest life you can live. And that, that, you know, as Gandhi said, you know, what's your message? My life is my message. I, I don't have anything to tell someone who is in the material life other than to tell them the story of my life and and then to share that with them. They may find something different in their life. I've seen the pattern. You know, Bill Gates is the richest person in the world. He's not the happiest person in the world. He's not on one survey as being the happiest person in the world. And again, this is not a judgment against Bill Gates. He just has the most resources. The problem is we have conflated the most resources with the most happiness. It's in our our very founding documents. It's the pursuit of happiness. Actually, it's poorly worded, if you ask me. It's a practice of happiness, not a pursuit. But we recognize that our founding fathers recognized that that idea was the most important. And the idea of, of, of this idea of happiness, and we already know through years and years and years of study what it is that that makes human beings happy. And money is part of it, but it's a low-level part of it. And we've conflated it to
1: make it the whole thing, and it's, it's not working. This may be a good way to sum it up. What's right with the world? The world. (laughs) The world.
0: During this conversation, we have completely ignored that there are tens of thousands of processes that are automatically happening to keep what we would call life going. From the breath in our bodies that are automatically being taken in and then alchemized, and then blown out as carbon dioxide. There is the process of the planets and the sun providing energy for all the life around us. I could go on for the next hundred years of podcast just listing in this moment the miracle of life that is happening right now to sustain life. And when you see that miracle and what it is that is at the root of life that makes life work, you can't help but affirm an optimism. This is why Emerson said the soul always affirms an optimism, never a pessimism. Because at the root of it all, nature wants to live. Life wants to live. We want to live. And what is that desire to continue but optimism?
1: That was Tom Shadyak, director of many successful Hollywood comedies, along with the documentary, I Am, and author of the book, Life's Operating Manual. I'm Dave Gardner, and this has been Conversation Earth, exploring our place on the planet.